have you ever uh, noticed those situations when you behave the most irrationally? When you act unreasonably? Whenever I do premarital counseling, I, I always devote a good bit of time to uh, irrational and out-of-proportion response, because that is a big part of marriage. <laughs> irrational and out-of-proportion response. Each one of us acts irrationally and out of proportion when a deep-seated fear is touched. We go, because what happens is we move from the rational part of our brain into the fight-or-flight part of our brain, the, the limbic system. So we go into fight-or-flight brain, and so if it seems like we're acting irrationally, it's because we are functioning in a survival state in that moment. And that robs us of reason. It robs us of empathy. It robs us of compassion. It robs us of kindness. We are, in fact, in that moment, our brain is not able to think rationally about what's happening. It's important for married couples to know this because it is foolish to argue when you are in a fight-or-flight state, when your body is telling you, run or fight, that is not a time for a discussion. And when you notice your spouse is in such a state, you may not be, but you notice your spouse is, it is better for all if you pause and you give space and you give reassurance that you're not in danger. Now, that, that might seem like an odd place to start. But that is a common place that we all go. I don't care what age you are. It is part of the way of thinking and reacting that persists from our fallenness. It is in our flesh to respond that way. It's part of what we want the Lord to heal in us. It's part of what we have asked in this Lenten season for the Lord to work on in us. And it feels embarrassing doesn't it? I am embarrassed to admit, but I do admit that I can and I do sometimes become immediately irrational and think like a chimpanzee. <laughs> I feel shame, and it is the right kind of shame. I rightly feel shame that Brooke can say something perfectly true. Brooke is my wife. She can say something perfectly true. She can say it in a certain tone that I respond by suddenly raising my voice to intimidate her. I do that. And it is sin. It is sin. And this is death in my flesh waging war against the law of my mind. Death in my flesh, waging war against the good that I would do. This thing that we all know about, and we all do, it happens when we're afraid. When we are afraid. So what does the Lord say to us about this? 
As we, we're continuing through the Lenten season to listen to questions that God asks. What does he ask? What does he say about our fear? This part of our fallen flesh that wages war against the us that he has renewed. What does he say about that? Well, the disciples were often afraid. And with good reason, they were afraid. In fact, if we look at the disciples' lives as a whole, the apostles all suffered pretty extremely. Uh, all but one that we know of died a violent, untimely death. And the one that didn't suffered in exile, alone, exposed to the elements, all because they were faithful. Before those deaths, they suffered the extremities. They suffered beatings, shipwrecks, hunger, thirst, exposure, sleepless nights, exhaustion, hatred, persecution, the loss of everything, every possession. The apostles. And they suffered the constant assault of evil spiritual forces. So how did the Lord prepare them for that? These situations of very real fear. Well, if the gospel accounts are any indication, these, all these disciples seem to have been really impacted by a certain event on this score that happened on the Sea of Galilee. If you have your Bible, look in Mark 4. Chapter 4, verses 35 and following. Uh, in that setting, what had happened is Jesus had been preaching to a big crowd. He'd been healing. He'd been demonstrating power and authority. He'd been making clear. Uh, he is the, the anointed one, the promised Christ, full of the power of God. And he told some parables about his kingdom. He had told how those who are part of his kingdom will receive his words. That if you are part of his kingdom, his words will find a home in you. And that's faith. To trust, to receive the words of God, that's faith. And the kingdom received will sprout and grow in them. That was the, the continuous message of these parables. The kingdom received sprouts and grows. And that's how his kingdom appears from within. That's what he was teaching. And then he was tired. And he's Mark 4, 35. Then he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. Just as he was, as in tired, worn out from extending himself. And they sat out across the sea. This is one of the moments, it doesn't happen a lot uh, in the Gospels, where a specific time of day is given. It was towards sunset. So as they're moving across the lake, bring it up in your mind. The sun begins to set. The sun twinkling on the sea. And Jesus fell asleep on a cushion in the stern. That's the back of the boat. There's a bench in the back of the boat, and there's a cushion there. 
And then it hit. A great windstorm, Mark tells us. The Sea of Galilee is a dangerous place. Uh, it sits down in a basin. Pull up Google Earth. You can see this. It sits in a basin. On the east side, there's a, a line of cliffs, a line of hills. Uh, on the west side, and the west side is the direction that the, the wind comes from. It comes from the Mediterranean. These are uh, sea breezes. When a high-pressure system, we can see this out if you go to the Oahis. When there's a high-pressure system, it forces the winds down into those gorges. It, it tunnels them. And so whatever winds are in the atmosphere get pushed, and then poof, they burst out through the gorges onto the Sea of Galilee. For this reason, boats on the Sea of Galilee to this day always stay close to the shore because it can, you know, a change of weather, the pressure system moves in, they, they blow up so fast, and the wind picks up. The disciples all know this. Jesus says, let's get in the boat and let's go across. They're experienced with this. Most of them have fished on that lake their whole lives. Now that tells us something else. That this is a remarkable windstorm. They know how to handle windstorms. This one is beyond them. They, they know how to handle things. They do this every day. They've been caught in the wind many times. This is a regular occurrence here. This windstorm is different. The extremity of it. Mark tells us the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Matthew says the boat was being swamped by the waves. This boat, it's pitching, it's rolling. They're not able to get it into the waves. So they're knocked alongside. The waves are coming over. Ten-foot waves. Luke adds, they were in danger. They were in danger. So none of these gospel writers, leave, they don't leave any doubt. This was a dangerous situation. It was beyond their ability to manage it. That is so clear in their accounts. It is beyond them. And they, all the gospel writers record that they shouted out to Jesus, we are perishing. It's a unique word. It's the only time the disciples say that. We are perishing. It's a very complete word. Right? It feels full, doesn't it? It's more complete than dying. So they said, we're dying. It's more complete than being killed. It's being wiped away. Utterly done away with. We are being destroyed. We are utterly, completely overwhelmed. This is the word used when you're trying very hard and nothing's worked. It's not resignation. We are trying. We have done all that we can. We've extended ourselves. It's not the long, quiet whimper. It's desperation. It's the cry that comes from fight or flight. Somewhere in the midst of fight or flight, I am perishing. 
I'm overwhelmed. I'm being destroyed. You know it. You, you know it. That feeling. There is nothing I can do, and I am trying to do it. Mark reveals another part of this fear. He records that the disciples woke Jesus up, and they said, Teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? Don't you care that we are perishing? There's a note of accusation in it. Don't you care? It's hard to tell what, what their accusation is exactly. They could be saying, why don't you share this terror with us? How can you sleep? Why don't you, you're our guy. Or it could be, why don't you ask the Father to save us? You've just been showing all the power that you have. You can heal people that are on the edge of death. We're on the edge of death. Why don't you do something? Whatever it is exactly they're implying, there's this note of accusation that he's not doing anything helpful. And he should not be at peace when they are not. And he ought to be disturbed by their disturbance. He ought to be disturbed by their disturbance. But Jesus' demeanor, it's, it's perfectly consistent with his demeanor throughout the whole Gospels. This is Jesus. It's how he responds. He is fundamentally undisturbed by every assault. Every accusation, every situation, until he comes to the eve of his death on the cross. Because his primary pervasive concern the thing that shapes everything he does and how he thinks is the will and the plan of God, his Father. And he rests in the will of the Father. He has perfect peace in the will of the Father as people are shouting in his face. He's in the will of the Father. That is the opposite of our tendency. Fair? Because we have a will and a plan of our own. We have desired outcomes. We have a vision for ourselves. We have a plan for life. We have a growth trajectory from one degree of happiness to another. More and more awesomeness of me. More and more me in the world. And this is the essential war within us. Our will and plan, shaped by the desires of the flesh, shaped by the values of the fallen order that we're, we grow up in and speak to us all the time. These are tenaciously set against the will and the plan of God. The will and the plan of God that he has, in fact, set deep within our hearts. If his spirit has come to you, he has set his plan deep within your heart and it's sown there like seeds. Seeds in your heart. His will is there. His will is there nudging, 
the will of God inclining us to eternal things. This is the law of the, the good law that Paul talks about in Romans 7, the good law of our mind that he's put within us. And yet the desires of the flesh crowd in to choke it out. There's a fear in our flesh that if the desires of God are allowed to sprout, if the desires of God are allowed to grow, if his plan is allowed to grow in us, the kingdom of God is allowed to grow in us, then our plans will perish. That dream that I had for myself will perish. We'll, we might be shown to be incompetent. I might be shown to be small. His plan may be that you won't get what you hoped for. That you won't get what you have put money away for or that you have spent money for, that you've poured your energy into, that you've schemed for, that maybe you have even suffered for or compromised for. You made sacrifices for this. And so when situations arise and when people and relationships arise that threaten us and make us feel desperately afraid for the survival of our plan, the survival of our self, the fleshly self, our self-image, our will, and our plan, we become afraid. And when this feels threatened, we may cry out angrily to God. Like the disciples there, don't you care that I'm perishing? Don't you care? You can do anything. Don't you care? You're supposed to love me. You're supposed to be this great, kind God. But I'm being overwhelmed, and you're asleep. You're asleep on the cushion, comfortable in the heavenlies. Don't you care? Those disciples are very relatable. And then he says to the wind and the waves, Peace, be still. And there was a great calm. Jesus shared his peace. He shares his peace. Because out of him flowed not just authority, not just command, not just power, but it was an authority that establishes peace. In the very midst of destruction, in the midst of perishing, in the midst of being overwhelmed, from him comes perfect peace. And then it's with this, then this question comes. This is our question for today, Mark 440. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? Well, obviously, it's because we're in a dangerous situation. And you don't seem to care. That's our response, right? But then the second question comes. Have you still no faith? 
And that second one, have you still no faith? It pushes the first one. Why are you still afraid? Past the initial protest. That is, it reveals that fear is a matter of trust. Fear is a matter of trust. This, this question from God, God in Christ settles the wind and his question brings the weight of his authority. It, it brings the weight of his authority and it, it creates calm. Why are you so afraid? It, like the wind is gone. Why are you so afraid? It recalls his words from Psalm 56 that we opened this morning with, In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. For what can flesh do to me? In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. For what can flesh do to me? I have sometimes been irritated by that. You? That psalm. What can flesh do to me? Quite a bit. That's what I tend to think. When I think of the suffering that many people have endured from wickedness, it seems like a lot. You don't have to read much of the news today to get a sense for what human beings are capable of. What drives this fear of our fallen flesh is death. We're afraid of death. That's what drives our fear. And that's why it's called, uh, death is called the sting of sin. The sting of sin is death. Because sin is in the world, our bodies die from the first. Because of sin, our bodies die, and we fight or we flee because we're afraid of death, even when it's irrational, even when we're not actually being threatened by death. The sin brings to us this fear of death. But we know sometimes it is rational. What can flesh do to me? It, it, it always brings me back to uh, a Rwandan widow named Immaculate who had all her limbs cut off. This is someone we know. She had all her limbs cut off and was left for dead. And yet she survived. That's what flesh can do. What can flesh do to me? That. And we're afraid of that. That in all its other forms. Or that somehow someone's words might do the same thing to our heart. Chop it up. And we're afraid of perishing. But then... The Lord gently, when I'm troubled by that, the Lord reminds me, it is him who's speaking this. It's him. 
This is the God, the one who's asking, why are you afraid? The one whose voice is in the psalm, what can flesh do to me? This is the God who came down to suffer. This is the glorious one who took on flesh so that he could have it torn, took on flesh in order that flesh might do terrible things to his flesh so that he could indeed be completely overwhelmed, stricken, wiped away. That's the God who says this. It's this God who understands the very depths of darkness, who personally took into himself every evil of the world as he suffered for us in the grave. Experienced in some sense everything that flesh can do. It's this God who asks, why are you so afraid? I don't know how you hear that question when it comes. What it touches in you. Uh, you might be hearing him ask it now. You might not be hearing him. But he will ask it of you, and he'll ask it again in days to come. Why are you so afraid? And you'll know it's him. You'll know it's his voice. Because it does in the soul what his voice did on the seas. When God says, why are you so afraid? It's the voice of peace that brings the calm. When he speaks, he calms. It doesn't mean the circumstances will change. Because the, the fallen order might go right on swirling. The situation that's overwhelming might just continue. Our enemies may continue to seek your destruction. But the will and the plan of God will win out in that moment when he asks it. That war within us. The will and the plan will win out over you trying to choke it out and stay in control. His voice has that effect. The end of Psalm 56 expresses what God offers in exchange for fear. Give me your fear and I will render, this is in Christ, I will render thanks to you for you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling that I may walk before God in the light of life. This is what our friend Immaculate says in some different words. She says, I am part of the gospel. I am a living sign of salvation. Her pain is continuous. And she says, Satan did his worst. What can flesh do? This. But I will live forever with joy on her face. I will live forever. That's what God's question does. His questions remind us of what is ultimately true. Calms the voices. His questions quiet us. 
His questions dissolve the mist from our eyes so that we can receive the gospel once again. The gospel that says your life is safe in me. Whatever you experience, your life is safe forever. So if you're able to hear it, hear it. Hear it today. Why are you afraid? Where is your faith placed? Lord, we are astonished at you. You do things that are too wondrous for us to experience, to know us in the depths of our experience, and to offer mercy. We thank you. Let's sing. Oh.